Well, good morning again, Cross Point. This morning we are going to turn in our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is near the end of your Bibles. You'll find it just after a number of the uh, other pastoral epistles, those short letters near the end of the New Testament. And I'd love it if you would turn there with me, if you brought your own Bible. If you didn't bring your own Bible, we have some paperback Bibles around you. Uh, if you're looking for one, just ask around and we'll make sure it gets to you. Uh, we are going to pay close attention to the words that are there. So let's all make sure that we are there in the Scriptures. Hebrews is a book by which I have been converted to Christ over and over again. As at times I have wandered off and grown cold, Hebrews has called me back to fix my eyes upon Jesus, the author and protector of my faith, over and over again. Some of you are familiar with uh, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe and the, the Chronicles of Narnia series. Uh, in that book, and the second time that um, as Lucy uh, one of the children in the book has grown up a bit and comes back and sees Aslan, the great king of the beasts, and the Christ figure in that series of novels. As she comes back and sees Aslan again, they have this little interchange. And in it, Aslan simply says, welcome, child. And Lucy responds, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says to her, that is because you are older, little one. And she says, not because you are. I am not, he says. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. May this book, may this book of Hebrews this morning and in the coming weeks and months that we spend there, may this book be the means of our maturity, that we would grow, and that the eternal Christ would seem to us all the bigger. And so, without wasting any time, let us look together. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to look at just the first four verses. And to be honest, it's too much. All right? The first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1. Please follow along with me. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Heavenly Father, You have spoken. And even these words bear witness to the Word that we would hear You this morning. So God, we ask, 
with no presumption that we can make it so, but with confidence that this is what you have done, what you have promised to do, that you would speak to us this morning. And we would know it is your voice because it sounds like the word of your word, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So with humble confidence, we come expecting you to bring us to maturity as we look to Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in your great, your excellent name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to spend just a few moments in introduction. We could spend a lot of time, really, uh, but we have a lot in these few verses to cover, right? And so we'll begin by simply considering who is it that wrote this in many ways, and you'll see it's actually my final answer, uh, that it doesn't really matter, and <laughs> we don't really know. But some of the considerations are some would argue that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Hebrews. Now, one of the notes that I find interesting about it, and something I would love to do, maybe at the end of our series or in a special gathering together, is, is this letter is actually a sermon. It's laid out like a sermon. And it, it draws upon the Scriptures as its, as its authority and its text as it holds out the apostles' teaching faithfully about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a gospel-centered, hear this, 45-minute sermon. So I would use that as my proof text. If you just read Hebrews, it takes 45 minutes to get through. That's why I preach so long. It's biblical. Um, so Hebrews, this sermon, some would argue, is written by the apostle Paul. It's simply another one of his magnificent letters unpacking the new covenant hope that is in Jesus Christ. And it certainly does that. In fact, early manuscripts even place the book of Hebrews just after the letter of Romans. On the other hand, Paul always signs his letters. And he always appeals to his apostolic authority in his letters, in all of the other letters. And the vocabulary and the style of the letter is considerably different than that of Paul's other letters. In fact, 150 of the words that are used in Hebrews aren't found anywhere else in the New Testament, which seems to indicate that we are dealing with another author, an author that simply goes unnamed. So if it wasn't Paul, and I personally don't think it was, it would, uh, could be almost anyone that might be mentioned in the New Testament, from Luke to Barnabas to Apollos. I like to think it was Apollos because of the eloquence that they found when they found him preaching the gospel and then the corrective that Priscilla and Aquila brought to him. But I think Origen, the church father, said it probably best. He says, but who wrote the epistle in truth? Only God knows. So there we have it. But whoever this author is, we know that he is inspired by the Holy Spirit and what the author writes is profound. And so let us consider the message of Hebrews briefly before actually looking at the words, the recipients must have had a broad understanding of much of the Old Testament. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Go home and read your way through this 45-minute sermon. You can do it in a sitting. 
and, and notice how much is likely unfamiliar to you, as we are often unfamiliar with the precious scriptures of our God in the Old Testament. But the recipients clearly must have been quite understanding of this teaching. The message, though, to these people who are understanding of the broad story of the Old Testament, at the same time, the message to the hearers is don't go back. Jesus is better. Specifically, don't go back to the ways of a Christless, a Jesus-absent Judaism. Don't go back to the law. Not a law that's not fulfilled by Christ. So the beauties of the Old Covenant all point to the Messiah of the New Covenant. Now this book is replete with pithy statements and profound and detailed arguments that Jesus is greater and that He is the fulfillment of everything that has come before. In fact, most of what has gone on before in redemption history up to the point in which Hebrews was written directly refers to Jesus. So that he makes the argument that like a shadow that receives its shape from the object itself, Jesus is that greater reality that stands up and over all of redemption history. So that all that of redemption history reflects the contours and the shape of Jesus Christ, its Messiah. Now, these arguments of how Jesus is greater than the prophets and the angels and the temple and the priests, they fill most of the chapters. But then, in the midst of these chapters, you'll see this. They'll catch you off guard, in fact. Watch as you're reading through the text. All of a sudden, you have these punctuated, severe statements of warning. Listen to a few of them. Hebrews 2.1. Therefore, we must pay close, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews 2.3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. 4.1, therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us Fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Severe warnings, punctuated warnings. So it would appear that the bulk of the book is deep doctrine or teaching about the person and work of Jesus. With this odd smattering of warning passages scattered throughout. So it would be easy for those of us, and there's quite a few of you in the congregation this morning, who, who love to study theology, right? It would be easy for us to turn to Hebrews and turn it into a sort of theological workbook and simply pass over the warnings. But what if the warnings themselves were the very heartbeat of the book? Listen to Hebrews 13.22. As the author is wrapping up the argument, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. You notice he didn't say, try to understand my word of doctrine. He said, bear with my word of exhortation. 
This letter is an exhortation. The author believes it will be difficult for us to bear. Not difficult to understand, difficult to bear. It might sound harsh. It might sound severe. It might sound like a stern warning out of the blue. You see, the warnings are not extraneous to the doctrinal reminders of the letter. The warnings are the purpose of the reminders. It goes like this. The exhortation is to pay attention to Jesus. Pay attention to Jesus that you might not be found in the end to have departed from him. So he holds them up high. It's the same way that we preach at Cross Point every single week. We hold Jesus up high and then say, don't miss him. That is the means by which we are kept so that we might not in the end be found to have departed from him. In chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, we're reminded of the Israelites, that they were so recently rescued in the Exodus out of Egypt, and now we find them wandering in the desert. And the author reminds us how quickly they ceased to listen to the voice of God. Specifically, they ceased to listen to the voice of God, these people who were called by God's name. They not only wandered in the desert, they wandered from God, and they were destroyed. Now, here we have the church. Jesus has brought us out of slavery of sin and brought us into another season that is sort of like a wandering. Certainly for the Hebrews, and certainly for us yet today, we are wandering, waiting upon another season in which we will enter into His rest forever at His second return. The parallels are clear, and I think they're compelling. We Will we, in this time of wandering, cease to listen to the voice of God? That's the heart of the warning, where the Israelites in the desert cease to listen to the voice of God in His perfect revealed law. The author of Hebrews gives us this letter that we might be exhorted, that we might be warned to continue to listen to the voice of God revealed in His perfect Son. These first words of Hebrews are four of the most profound and jam-packed verses of Scripture. You would do well to listen. Listen to them a dozen times over. To to consider carefully this morning and then continue in conversation this afternoon. In fact, I believe the whole point of Hebrews is to exhort us to pay attention to what Hebrews holds up for us for the whole of our lives. So let us pay attention together. We're going to begin by looking at the beginning of First words, long ago, got it? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. I mean, just pause. Sit there for a second. This says is it says we have an Old Testament word that at many times and in many ways God gave word to the people of God that we might hear Him, that we might listen to Him. A word that was spoken through the prophets. Now before we turn to look at the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ, the way that Jesus is better than the prophets, the Son of God, let us not miss the beautiful affirmation of the Old Covenant made here in Hebrews. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Bulk of the Scriptures are affirmed to us as God speaking. Are you listening? Sometimes I feel like God is so distant. 
He's speaking. Are you listening? God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God's voice was heard, understood, recorded that we might have what those before us had, that we might have God's own words, God's speech. And yet, what the Apostle John said remains true. In John chapter 1, verse 18, he says, No one has seen, ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Jesus has made him known. Commentator Adolf Sapphire says this, Beautiful is the night in which the moon and the stars of prophecy are types, and types are shining. But when the sun arises, then we forget the hours of watchfulness and expectancy, and in clear and joyous light of day, there is revealed to us the reality and substance of the eternal and heavenly sanctuary. You see, the books of the Old Testament are like stars in the sky bringing light to our long night. But then day breaks, and the sun's rays break forth, revealing what was previously hidden in mystery. I was found on Facebook recently a little clip of the Christian hip-hop artist KB, and he was preaching to a gathering at a conference, and he said this, Scripture distinguishes between God and all false gods. Do you know how? Do you know why? It says because God speaks, and they don't. The idols are called dumb and mute. And Hebrews says God spoke. Are we listening? John Frame says, when we read the Word, we encounter God. When we encounter God, we hear His Word. Let us understand these things together. As Francis Schaeffer, one of my favorite pastors and theologians, writes, He is there, and He is not silent. He is the God who has spoken. Now, Hebrews beautifully holds out for us exactly how He has spoken. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to us by, to, the, to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The contrast is between by the prophets and by the Son. This is the primary contrast, that the prophets did not possess or embody or personify the Word of God spoken. The Word of God was shown to them, right? The Word of God was told to the prophets, even placed in their mouths, but the Word always remained something that was inherently distinct from them. Do you hear that? The Word was always something that was outside of the prophet, then placed upon or through them. But it was distinct from them. Now we have the Word by the Son. The Son who is Himself the Word made flesh. You see, the Word and the prophet become one in Jesus Christ as He is the Word revealed. A.W. Pink says, all that God has to say to us is in the Son. Jesus, God the Son, 
embodies not only the grace of the gospel as we see in the New Testament, but the fulfillment of the whole of the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. This one Christ, this one word. Jesus is the summary. He's the fulfillment. He's the revelation of the whole of God's voice. Because I cannot overstate that. That is, that is profound, and it ought to change the way we behave. You see, it's an exhortation. It's not just, oh, that's so neat. I ought to write that down. It's, it's an exhortation. Jesus is the summary, fulfillment, and revelation of the whole of God's voice. Are you listening? Do you hear the exhortation? Are you listening to Jesus? Now, there are some implications. You see, you simply cannot... Claim to pay attention to Jesus if you don't pay attention to His Word. This is culturally normal that we make this claim. There are those who make up Jesus as they go. There are those who claim the name of Christ, but live like the world because they know nothing of His voice. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. At the same time, before we beat up on the culture too much, at the same time, we cannot claim to pay attention to the Word of God if we do not simultaneously pay attention to Jesus, who is the Word. I'll tell you what I mean by that. There are those who know all the laws of the Bible. There are those, perhaps even here, who can proof text with the best of them. You can put all the doctrine together and you've even memorized catechisms that reflect on it. But you have not paid attention to Jesus. Those people are like Pharisees. They know everything about the law, but nothing of salvation. They, They even know all the doctrines and they know the words, but none of the sweetness of the Word made flesh. When you go to the Word, are you paying attention and seeking and praying and longing after the sweetness that is Jesus Christ? The glory that is Jesus Christ? You cannot pay attention to the Word of God if you aren't looking for Jesus. Jesus. Spoken to us by His Son. It continues then. It begins to unpack who the Son is. It tells us that He is the heir of all things. Like a machine gun in rapid fire, it begins to unpack who the Son is. And the first thing that comes out of His mouth, He's the heir of all things, which reminds us of Colossians 1.16. The apostles speak with a unified voice when they say, all things were created through Him and for Him. Now we'll come back to the first preposition in a little bit, but let us consider what it means that all things are for Him. Jesus is the heir of all things. For nothing would exist if it were not for Him to begin with. Nothing would exist if it was not created for Him. This is the very purpose of all being, that every single molecule, every atom, every thought, every dream was created for Christ 
And he will receive the glory in the end, whether it's in salvation or in judgment. So when we say he was appointed heir of all things, what we're saying is all things were created for him. Do you understand this? So we're like, yeah, I sign up for that. Yeah, I can check that biblical doctrine. But let me ask it another way. Is your life shaped not only by Jesus, but for Jesus? Does your life look like it was created not only by Jesus? Does your salvation look like it was not only performed by Jesus? Does it look like it was performed for the glory of Jesus? Does it look like it was toward Jesus? And what about the things that you think you possess? Do you understand that they were not created for you? The glory does not belong to you. You are not the inheritor of all things. You are in the, the inheritor of no things except that you be found in Christ. We are idolatrous kingdom builders, and we leverage wealth and homes and careers and talents and family for our own glory, but we are not the heir of all things. The glory of creation of this world does not belong to us. So we, in our idolatrous rebelliousness, we're glory thieves when we don't remember the Son and submit to His glory. He is the heir of all things. You see, that's, that's not just like a sweet doctrine found in volume 3 of some systematic theology. That has implications for my afternoon. You see, I can't even eat a meal without praying. You know why? Because I have to say, God, thank you. This food belongs to you, and you've given it to me. May you be glorified in your generosity and provision for your people, just like you said you would do. And then all of a sudden, that food doesn't belong to me. It belongs, as I eat it, to the glory of God, and He is pleased to give it. The implications are real. The glory of creation of this world doesn't belong to us. It is, belongs to Jesus, who is the inheritor of all things. Right after that, then, right after we are told that he, is, that he was appointed the heir of all things, it says, through whom also He created the world. The world was created by the Father through the Son. Again, go back to Colossians 1.16. It says, all things were created through Him and for Him. Having clearly revealed the why of all things in Hebrews, now Hebrews reveals the how of all things. Here's another scripture for you. Romans 11.36 For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, the Apostle Paul in Romans understands what all these things mean. They don't just mean, well, now we know who He is, how He did it, and why He did it. Great, let's write books about that too. We know it's for glory. We know it's for worship. We know it's to make us sing louder and clearer. We're told very quickly again as we continue. Rapid fire, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory 
of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Glory shines. That's what it does. That is the nature of glory. It shines. Every time we see the word glory appear, we see shining and radiance and light that burns and blinds. Glory shines. And this passage says Jesus is that shine. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the light that shines out of the light. One of my favorite passages in all of the Scriptures, it's worthy of memorization. It's worthy to be written in the margin of your Bible, even if you're using one of the Bibles that are provided. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Precious for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, Creator God, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How so? Well, because He's the radiant light that shines from the light, which is the glory of God. I was looking at the definition of radiance, the, the word that stands behind the word, you know. And as I looked at it, it said that Radiance is the brightness of the source. Jesus is the brightness of the source. When we see the shining light of Jesus, you are seeing the very radiance of the glory of God. As the Nicene Creed puts it, He is light of light, true God from true God. There is no glory that is in God of which Jesus is not the shining radiance. Again, you can check that box. I got that doctrine. Yep. Even memorize the Nicene Creed. If that's true, why are we stumbling around in darkness not looking to Him? You see, it's an exhortation. Jesus, eternal and bright as the radiance of the glory of God, we ought to look to Him. Now, let us reconsider the mouthpieces of the Old Testament, because I think that is the contrast that is being drawn as he holds up this beautiful doctrine, this beautiful teaching. Moses is that great and archetypal prophet, that that when you spoke about prophets among the Israelite people, they would think Moses, right? Moses, and then, then Elijah. Of course, Jesus says, John the Baptist, Moses, he receives the promise that when his stammering tongue speaks, it would be with all the authority of the Lord God himself as he was sent. When he comes down off the mountain, having seen the glory of God, he is literally shining. Moses, Moses coming down from the mountain, speaking God's word, holding up God's word, revealing his law, shining. He's radiant. And so they even have to veil his face. But here's what happens to Moses, the prophet. The glory fades. Isn't that true of every single prophet? Every single king? Every single one who would bear witness to the light, but who is not himself the light. It's true with all the prophets. Their word is true. Their word is sure. The very Word of God, but they themselves are neither not light nor glory. Why are we looking at them? We ought to hear the Word 
and look to Christ. Because the Son comes in, Jesus Christ, who is the radiance of the glory of God, and He does not merely speak as one of the prophets. He speaks as the Word of God Himself, which is the light of the world. When Jesus speaks, He's not a prophet. He's the Word. Are you listening? Are you paying attention? Does it sound like it bears witness to the truth? Does it sound like the truth? Does it look like glory? Jesus is greater than the prophets. How much greater then is the gospel word that he has spoken is the argument that Hebrews will make for us. We're told that he's the exact imprint of God's nature. I think this is offered here as a, as a quick corrective. We might be tempted to think that Jesus is merely coming from God, but Hebrews wants to leave no room for that error. So he says he is the exact imprint of God's nature. When you see Jesus... And more relevant in our passage, when you hear Him. When you hear Jesus, you are seeing and hearing the actual God. God perfectly revealed in His own nature. One commentator, Kent Hughes, says, he calls these descriptions that are put so close to one another, Jesus the radiator and Jesus the representer. If you continue... You see that this radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, also upholds the universe by the word of His power. We sing something about the power of the word this morning. We've already sung it. We've already begun to remember it. And here we are in the word, seeing it authoritatively written. He upholds the universe. God speaks. Now, how powerful must be that word? We've already been told that the world was created by the Word. Now we're told that it is His spoken Word by which the entire universe is sustained. It is not sustained by natural law set in motion waiting to wind down because of entropy. The world is sustained by the spoken Word of Jesus Christ moment by moment, hour by hour, Day by day. Now remember Jesus. Born of a virgin, right? Swaddled in a manger. He was raised in a small town in Galilee, preaching from town to town with nowhere to rest his head. And then he was rejected, suffering, and crucified. We know the end. He was resurrected. But he is not weak. Jesus is not weak. The very oxygen molecules that He brought into His lungs on the day that He took His first breath as incarnate flesh, those two oxygen atoms that we call O2 were held together and sustained by the word of the infant boy's power. Don't, Don't forget who it is that we celebrate. The dust kicked up by the sandals of his feet as he walked from town to town fell back to the earth because gravity is sustained by the word of his power. Moment by moment. Day by day. And here's here's what astounds me. The leather whips, the wooden beams, the metal nails, each exist because he wills it. Moment by moment, during the whole of the crucifixion, by the word of His power, all things were sustained. 
Not for one moment, not for one moment should we be surprised when the upholder of the universe takes up his life from the dead, rising victorious over sin, death, and the devil. We're like, of course, he must have been doing something. The word of his power. So here's what that means for us as an exhortation. Never should we hesitate to believe that for all who place their trust in him according to his promise, whatever things in this world that cause us pain, not one thing will not also be redeemed according to his glorious purpose. If he sustains it, he will will it to the ends of his glorious purpose and the good of the people that he has come to save. As Romans 8.1 says it, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to, listen, your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Who's weak this morning? Who is wondering and wandering? Who experiences moment by moment the weakness of the flesh and wonders why these things are still sustained? We can trust that the one who endured the cross for us and who is resurrected in victory for us will redeem us to himself. The spirit who dwells in you. The very spirit of the Christ. And then we have this. And I think it's where the whole passage is driving. It says, After making purification for sins, he sat down. You see, I know that the problem for me is not the things of the world. I can get depressed and it can be a very hard day and the things that are going on around me can be so very difficult. But I know that the problem for me is not the things of this world. I know the problem for me is the sin of my soul. I and you have seen trials, there are many, but our greatest trouble is not from without, our greatest trouble is from within. And Jesus not only upheld the universe, but he made purification for sin. Let's first observe what the one who makes purification sin must be. If he would care enough to make such purification, he must be holy. He must be himself concerned with purity. The whole of Hebrews holds out with great clarity and doctrinal precision the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in his, particularly his atoning work for sinners. Listen to these two verses, Hebrews 9, 22 and 28. I can't wait to get to them. They're so good. Hebrews 9, 22 and 28. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. You see, that's where we are. We are eagerly waiting for Him because He's already dealt with sin and sat down. He's done. My sin is done for. I told you that's my biggest problem. And he sat down from that work. Pure. Atoned for. Now here's the question for me. 
a question for you. How in the world will we be kept for the day that he returns? How will we not be found wandering? How will we endure and not wander off while we eagerly wait for him? Will we wait in faith? By heeding the word of Christ, will we remember his gospel and his glory? As Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? Question mark. Friends, there is no answer but this one. By guarding it according to your word. And God has spoken in his son. Practically and immediately, the question is, will we heed the words of Hebrews? Let me be very specific. Will we sit up and attention? Will we open up our Bibles? Are we taking notes? Has, has anything said, you know what? That is something that is worth underlining. That is something worth drawing my attention back to because I need all the helps I can get. Will we listen in the morning and speak in the afternoon? Will we search this book and particularly over the course of almost a year, this letter as though we believe God, as though we believe he's actually made purifications for sin and as though he is revealed here? Will we seek to understand the doctrines more deeply? This is a hard one. Because some of you are going to say, that was complicated, but we know it's all about Jesus in the end. That's not what it said. It does say it's all about Jesus in the end, but it says a lot of other things to lead up to that. Will you lean in to understand the things that you find difficult to understand? Because you believe that He will keep you by it. Will we seek to see connections more clearly? They were not for us to know and understand. If the Father would not have spoken them by the Son, the Spirit would not have borne witness to them in this Word. So our confession is this, the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin and we will pay attention to the Word that reveals it. We're told very quickly that He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty. A.W. Pink, who is probably the most helpful commentator I've found thus far, he says, he tells us three things that this means. The first thing that it means is that he sat down, displays that he sat down at a place of high honor. He's not lounging on a couch. He's not kicked back on a lazy boy. He's not lolling in a swing. He is seated high upon his throne. Secondly, it means that There is settled completion. Purification has been made. Why am I striving to show God that I'm pure? He knows better. The cross is the evidence that there is something wrong with my sin. I am not pure. But he has made purification. And it's a settled work he sat down. The atoning work of the gospel is complete. Hebrews will go to lengths to hold out this reality for us. And thirdly, perfect rest. Since the work is done, all that remains for us who have been purified is that we find our rest in Him who has taken His seat. And again, the the letters of the Scriptures bear witness to to this, that we are seated with Him in Christ at the right hand of God. A.W. Pink, again, it is with a heavenly Christ that Christianity has to do. In a number of 
scriptures. He holds out in 3.1 the heavenly calling, and then the heavenly gift, and then the heavenly things, and then the heavenly country, and then the heavenly Jerusalem, and the names, hear this, that are written in heaven. We are dealing with a Christ who is seated at the right hand of God, who has sent His Spirit to dwell among us. The next word is almost obvious. It says, having become as much superior to the angels. Are you kidding me? Of course, the very word is superior to the messenger. Superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We'll look more closely at his superior, superiority to the angels next week. But let us end with this. With the clarity and simplicity of the final statement that his name is excellent. What is the word that God has spoken? Some, some of you may have come in, you may say, I need a word today. I need a word from Jesus. I need, I need a word. I need to hear from God. God has spoken. And the word that He has spoken for us is Christ Himself. He's spoken the name of the Son, the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. My prayer for us during this series, my hope and expectation according to the Spirit's work of transformation in our lives is that we would look to Christ and we'd see Him. And seeing Him, we would be changed and kept and preserved until the end. But listen, if you have not looked to Him, if you're still looking to yourself or to the world, 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 or maybe you're even here hoping that I would give you some little nugget for how to live your life a little bit better, you're looking in the wrong places. And I would call you this morning to cease your search and look up to Christ, who is the author of our faith and the perfecter of our faith. And I'll tell you what that means is you need to repent of all other looking. You need to confess your sin and the idea that you can atone for yourself, that you can purify yourself. And you need to look to Christ and confess that He is the one who has done that work for you. Let's pray. Lord, every one of us need this. I opened our time saying that I have been converted again to you over and over again because of this letter. Would you turn our hearts again? Would you keep us by this means? And Lord, for the one who is not yet kept at all, who is still striving, who is still wondering, who is still questioning, who is still doubting in full unbelief, Lord, I pray that something would sound compelling about the light which is Christ because you are compelling and that you, your spirit would work in that heart to bring about repentance and faith this morning, and then you would keep them, along with the rest of your church. Lord, do a work in the coming weeks and months, we pray. Heighten our affections for you. Keep our eyes fixed upon you. 
And then send us shining like Moses saying, we've, we've heard the word. We've seen the Christ in our communities where we can bear witness about you. Thank you, Jesus. We pray this in your good name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.